My name is Matthew Capone, and I'm the pastor here at Cheyenne Mountain Presbyterian Church, and it's my joy to bring God's Word to you today. A special welcome if you're new or visiting with us. We're glad that you're here. And we're glad that you're here, not because we're trying to fill seats, but because we are following Jesus together as one community. And as we follow Jesus together, we become convinced that there's no one so good that they don't need God's grace, and no one so bad that they can't have it which means that we believe God has something to say to everyone in his word. And so we come week after week and open up the Bible to hear what God has to say to us. We are studying the book of 1 Peter, and the book of 1 Peter is a letter. It's a letter written by a man named Peter to churches in in Asia Minor in the first century AD in what is now Western Turkey. And he writes to these churches because they are struggling. These churches are struggling for two reasons. First, they're feeling out of place in the world as Christians. And second, they're facing opposition from the world as Christians. Peter writes to both instruct them and to encourage them. He writes to encourage them that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth living and loving for, and he's worth suffering and dying for. He also writes to instruct them. He writes to instruct them how they should live as Christians in the world, and he also instructs them what they should do when they face opposition for being Christians. We've started a section a couple weeks ago on suffering specifically, and you'll remember that there are three kinds of suffering. Suffering type one is suffering because of your personal sin or foolishness. So we're coming up on tax season. If you cheat on your taxes and the IRS finds out, you will suffer. Suffering type two, suffering for the general presence of sin and evil in the world. If you are diagnosed with cancer, That is a real and serious form of suffering. It's not because you personally sinned. It's because you live in a world where sin and evil uh, still have some hold. And then there's suffering type three, and that's the suffering that Peter is talking about here, and that's suffering for righteousness' sake, as he called it last week, or suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And that's suffering that happens when we do what God has commanded us to do, what he's asked us to do, and it leads to persecution, Last week, we asked a question about fear. What do we do when we're afraid of what we might lose for doing what's right? And we had two answers. First, we replace the fear of man with the fear of God. And second, we know that we fear God when we're willing to speak about our hope in Jesus, even when it's hard or dangerous. This week, we're speaking not about fear, but about hope. How do we maintain hope and patience when we suffer for doing what's right? How do we maintain hope and patience? Perhaps you lose your job. Be a challenging situation to maintain hope in. How do you maintain hope when you face opposition, when people in your family and your friends say mean and nasty things about you? How do you maintain hope when you lose relationships because of Jesus Christ? That's what we're going to be looking at now in this passage. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're starting at verse 18. And as we come to this, remember that this is God's word. And God tells us that his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In other words, God has not left us to stumble alone in the dark. But instead, he's given us his word to show us the way to go. And so that's why we read from it now, starting at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I invite you to pray with me as we come to this portion of God's word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again uh, that you are a good and loving Father. You're not a distant uh, CEO. You haven't left us alone as orphans in a merciless universe. But instead, you come and you speak directly to us through your word. And so we ask simply that you would do that this morning, that you would help us speak, and that we would be able to hear and understand and believe, and that you would give us incredible hope and encouragement through this passage. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I told you a story about a woman named Corrie Ten Boom, who was a Dutch watchmaker who lived in the Netherlands during World War II, and she worked to hide Jews from the Nazis to keep them out of concentration camps. She ended up being caught and spent most of 1944 herself in a concentration camp, and I shared the story with you about how she, instead of having fear, chose to talk about her faith and hope in Jesus Christ even when it was dangerous. She talked about it to one of her Nazi captors, a lieutenant who was in charge of interrogating her. And so that was a place where Corey showed that she didn't have fear. Instead, she had the, the fear of God rather than the fear of man. Now, Corey also had times where she demonstrated not her lack of fear, but her hope. Earlier in the story, she's captured. She's caught for her work to protect the Jews. She's taken to a concentration camp, and she becomes sick. After she becomes sick, she has to go and see a doctor. And while she's there, a nurse puts an unknown package into her hand. And so Corey begins to pray that there would be a Bible in this package. There's no explanation of why it's been handed to her or what's in it. When she opens it up, she finds not a complete Bible, but instead a copy of just the four Gospels. So she has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After that, she becomes, because of her sickness, she's put into solitary confinement, so she's all by herself in a prison cell. No one's there with her. If you know anything about human nature, you know isolation's one of the worst things you can do to someone. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1, we're told that isolation is one of the most foolish things you can do. So, of course, she'd be tempted uh, not to have hope. She'd be tempted to despair, wondering what good could come about this uh, this cell, this prison. But she begins reading through the Gospels uh, during this time, and she reads them through sometimes one Gospel in an entire sitting. And so she's reading over and over about the story of Jesus and his life and then his death and his resurrection. And she has this epiphany as she's reading. She realizes that there's a pattern to Jesus' life. That Jesus suffered, but he was also victorious. And so she begins to wonder how that might apply to her own life. And she says this, Was it possible that this, all of this that seemed so wasteful and so needless, this war, prison, this very cell, none of it was unforeseen or accidental? Could it be part of the pattern first revealed in the Gospels? Hadn't Jesus... And here my reading became intent indeed. Hadn't Jesus been defeated 
as utterly and unarguably as our little group and our small plans had been. But if the Gospels were truly the pattern of God's activity, then defeat was only the beginning. I would look around at the bare little cell and wonder what conceivable victory could come from a place like this. I sat down on the cot, opened the Gospel of John, and read until the ache in my heart went away. What Corey identified from the Gospels is the same idea that Peter is drawing our attention to here in verse 18, that there is a pattern to Jesus' activity. There's a pattern to Jesus' life on this earth, and that pattern is going to apply to us as well. We see that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. In other words, Jesus lived in this world under the effects of sin. Jesus' body was vulnerable to sickness. And in that body, he suffered and was put to death. However, he was then made alive in, in the spirit. In other words, Jesus had a body that was then free from the effects of sin. He had a resurrection body. That's the body that Paul tells us about in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the body that Jesus encounters his disciples in after his resurrection. Jesus has a pattern. He suffered. He was put to death. He was also victorious. He rose from the dead. He was made alive in the spirit. And so trying to find hope in suffering, Corey realized this, the same thing that Peter is telling us, the pattern of Jesus' life is ours as well. Christ suffered and then he was victorious. If we suffer for righteousness sake, we will be victorious as well because we belong to Jesus. We, when we suffer, we have hope because we know that it's not the end of the story. Suffering was not the end of Jesus' story. It will not be the end of our story either. Victory was the end of Jesus' story. Victory will be the end of our story as well. That's what she realized in, the, in that cell. She was suffering, but Jesus was victorious. And so she would be victorious too. She found hope in suffering because of Jesus' victory. That's not the only thing, though, that Peter tells us in verse 18. He tells us at least three distinct things. I'm going to talk about two of them now and come back to one later. We've seen first the pattern of suffering, then victory. We also see the sense in which Jesus sympathizes with us. At the very beginning, it says Christ also suffered. This is following up on our passage from last week, verse 17. We're told that it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. And this is the first reason that's given. It's good to suffer because Jesus also suffered. Later during her time at the concentration camp, Corey and her sister and the other people there would be put through a humiliating ritual where once a day they would have to take off all their clothes and they would parade in front of these Nazi guards as what was called a health inspection. And while they were doing this, every day they continued to read through the Gospels. At one point as they were reading through, Corey made another realization that Jesus, she says, he hung naked on a cross. And as she thought about that in relationship to her own suffering, she turns to her sister, Betsy, and says this, Betsy, they took his clothes too. She realizes that Jesus is not just with her in his pattern. He doesn't just present victory. 
but he suffered. And so he is someone who has sympathy. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But instead, someone who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. By the way, the book of Hebrews is written to a very similar situation where Christians are wondering whether it's worth it to continue following Christ. And when the author of Hebrews tells them that, he says, says that in the context of telling them to hold fast their confession. Remain Christians. Jesus suffered too. And so when other people speak ill about us, we can say they spoke poorly about Jesus too. When we confront struggles and challenges in this life because of righteousness sake, we can say Jesus faced struggles and challenges too. And so we find hope both in Jesus' victory and his sympathy. Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That's the trajectory of this passage, and it's with that in mind we're going to tackle everything else that's going to come. So we have Jesus' pattern, his pattern of suffering and victory. And Peter, a good preacher here, is going to give us two sort of examples or illustrations. He's going to continue to focus on Jesus And once he finishes focusing on Jesus, he's going to focus on Noah. So we're going to have two examples of what it looks like, what Jesus' victory looks like, and how it applies to us, both in Jesus and in Noah. I'm also going to warn you as we come up here, we are entering what's considered by some people to be one of, if not the most challenging passage in the entire New Testament to understand. Now, what I'm not going to do uh, this morning is I'm not going to dive into every single word study I'm not going to outline all the different historical positions of the church on this passage, not because it's unimportant, it is very important, but we're limited in the amount of time we have. And also, I want to hit home the primary point of this passage, which is hope. Everything that we encounter, Jesus proclaiming to spirits in prison, the discussion of baptism, all of it ties back to our hope as Christians when we suffer. So what I'm going to do is recommend if you want to dig into the nitty-gritty details earlier this week, I posted an article by a man named Sam Storms on our church Facebook page. It goes into, it's excellent, by the way. It goes into detail on many of these questions. If you have questions about why I've reached some of the conclusions I have, he addresses all of that. If you want to talk more, I'm happy to talk more. That link to that article was also in our Friday email this past Friday. It'll be in the Friday email this next Friday as well. So if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of how the church has thought about proclaiming to spirits in prison for the last 2,000 years, that is a resource for you. With that, I'm going to jump back in. We're looking at Jesus as an example of suffering and then victory, and we hear this. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In which here is referring to the fact that he's in the spirit. It's in the spirit that he goes and does this. And that's important for us to know that when Jesus is doing this act, he's doing it after his resurrection. So whatever we're talking about, it's something post-resurrection that rules out several interpretations. One would be uh, that Jesus did this in between his death and his resurrection. Jesus is doing this in his resurrection body and he's going, he doesn't descend, he's going and he proclaims to the spirits in prison, which raises a couple questions. First of all, who in the world are these spirits in prison? 
This word, spirits, when it's unqualified in this way, usually refers to uh, typically angels, non-human, uh, non-human uh, individuals, I guess you could say, non-humans, non-human spirits. And then we're told something else about these spirits. These are spirits, non-human spirits, that did not obey during the time of Noah. And so what's most likely happening here, we're, we're starting this uh, longer portion about Noah that we're going to get to in a bit. What's most likely happening is we're referring back to Genesis chapter 6, part of which we read this morning, which is the story of Noah, a familiar story about a man who obeyed God when no one else did. Right before the section we read in Genesis chapter 6, we hear about these figures, these, quote, sons of God, who are stirring up part of the trouble that led to the, the judgment of the flood. So sin was great on the earth during the time of Noah. Many people think, and this passage is most likely referring back to the fact that part of what stirred up that trouble was these angelic powers who came and were interfering with men. And there's a story outside of the Bible that Peter may be referring to that says that these spirits were then constrained, restrained by God after the fact. And so there's these in other words, fallen angels from the time of Noah who were restrained by God, held back from wreaking more havoc on the earth. You with me? What in the world does that have to do with hope in suffering? Well, Jesus goes and he proclaims something to them. This word proclaimed here uh, could mean preach. It doesn't always mean preach. The word that Peter uses for preaching is a different one, which is preaching the gospel. This could be just making a pronouncement. So Jesus goes after his resurrection and he pronounces something to evil angels who've been restrained by God's power. You with me? The best way I can think about it or explain it to you is like this. I mentioned last year that I grew up going to summer camp. We're gonna rewind uh, from my time when I was in go-kart camp to an earlier period when I was younger. And when you were in the younger camp, one of the most exciting things was the games you would play in the evening. And my favorite game to play in the evening was Capture the Flag. Now, if you're familiar with Capture the Flag, you have two teams. They're separated in a field. Each team has a flag. You're trying to cross into the enemy territory, grab their flag, and bring it back to your territory. The problem is, if someone tags you, while you're in the enemy territory, you go into jail. Now, I was not, uh, I had a, a kind of a, a specific strategy when I played this game. I didn't have the speed or the personality to be a flag capturer, but my great ambition was to be a jailbreaker. And if you're a jailbreaker, you know, you don't have to go directly for the flag. That's a bold move. By the way, this was played over the whole summer camp, so it wasn't just an open field. There was forest. Lots of obstacles to overcome. My plan would be to get close to the prison and you sort of sacrifice yourself because if you could run to the prison and get past the guards and tag anyone on your team, you would probably end up in prison, but everyone else is set free. Now, this illustration falls apart at some point, so don't take it to an extreme. Imagine there's a cosmic game of capture the flag. These evil spirits have done so much evil that God has restrained them so they are no longer on the playing field. By his power, he's holding them back. They are in prison. Jesus, having the skill, being the great hero who goes and captures the flag, brings it back. 
He is victorious finally, right? The game is over. Jesus in his resurrection has ended the, the power of evil forever. He has conquered death. It's what Paul refers to as the death of death. What does he do next? He goes to the jail and he thumbs his nose at the demons who are in prison. That is what Peter is most likely saying here. In fact, Martin Luther was the one that said when Jesus rose from the dead, he went to the devil and he thumbed his nose at him. What does that have to do with hope in suffering? Peter is telling these people that Jesus' victory is so complete that his power is not just over people and the things in this world. He is powerful over all forces, human and angelic. He's declaring his victory over evil and demonic forces, letting them know that if they were wondering how the game was going to end, he can now tell them it's over and they're not going to be able to play anymore. God's victory is complete. And so in the pattern of suffering to victory, that's how victorious God is. He's so victorious that he declares his authority over the worst angels. And so these readers here can take tremendous hope. God has power over what we can see and what we can't see. He has power over the material world and physical world and also over the spiritual world. He has power over people and he has power over evil and demonic forces. God is in control of everything. Jesus' victory was complete. That's why it matters that he proclaims to the spirits in prison. Finally, God is in control. He is restraining evil in this world. As bad as it could be, as bad as it is, it could be worse. As bad as it could be for these folks in Asia Minor, it could be worse. God is still in control, holding back and restraining evil. As bad as it may become for the church in certain parts of the world, God is still in control, holding back and restraining evil. God's power is over everything. He is so powerful that he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Finally, with Jesus, verse 22, he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In case we missed the point, Peter concludes by telling us that everything is under God's control and power. We might even say that there's no place that God is not in control. And that's something that Corey Tinboom realized as well. And this is the last quote I'll read for you from her book. She's discussing with her sister what they're going to do when they get out of the concentration camp. And her sister has a dream that they're going to go and share with other people about the hope that they've experienced in suffering. And so Betsy tells her this, we must tell people what we have learned here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey, because we have been here. There is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. Jesus' victory is over everything. It's over angels, good and bad. 
It's over authorities and powers. Everything has been subjected to him. That's how powerful the pattern is that we follow when we suffer for righteousness' sake. That is how we continue to have hope, even when we suffer for doing what is right. Now, I told you there was going to be two illustrations. One, Jesus. The other one, Noah. Now, we've already started the Noah illustration because the spirits in prison is a, is a Noah spirits in prison. And again, Noah's a man who lived. Uh, we're told about him in Genesis. The only righteous man, as is emphasized here, uh, in the ark, right? It's him, eight persons, him and his family. The world is judged by water, by a flood that covers the entire earth. So only, who's in the, only the people in the ark are saved. Peter's going to use that as well as an illustration for these people to continue to encourage them. You might think about it this way. Okay, that's great that Jesus uh, is victorious. We're glad that happened to Jesus. We're not Jesus. How can we be sure that this is going to happen to regular, normal people like you and me? And so Peter presents a regular, normal person, Noah. Not only are you happening in, in something that's going to happen in the future, the victory that you're sharing with Jesus, God has already demonstrated his faithfulness to Noah. And that's the rest of this passage. Remember, these, um, <clears throat> these angels occurred, verse 19. They weren't obeying. When were they not obeying? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Remember, Noah was building the ark for decades. God was patient with the wicked. God was patient with the wicked then, giving them a long time to repent. God is patient with the wicked now, also giving them a long time to repent. Don't be fooled that because you're waiting, it means that God's not going to show up. Noah waited a long time, and God showed up. By the way, if you flip back to our preparation for worship from the Gospel of Matthew, that's the point that's being made there. Everyone was eating and drinking, until the day of the flood. So you're in a situation, that situation, it happened to Noah too. You're not alone. People were patient then. It took a long time for that to happen. You suffer under evil. Guess who also suffered under evil? Noah. And God was finally faithful to him. There's a few people, eight persons. You feel like a minority? you probably have more than eight people. Guess who also felt like a minority? Noah. Noah probably felt like an idiot. Now, Peter doesn't say that here. I'm extrapolating a little bit. Most likely felt like an idiot at times, right? I'm building an ark, and there's no water. This doesn't make sense to the world around me. It doesn't fit in with the reality in this moment, and other people think I'm crazy. Maybe other people think that you're crazy for being a Christian. Maybe that's part of your suffering for the sake of righteousness. You're in good company. They thought Noah was crazy too. And God was faithful to Noah. Verse 20. A few, that is eight persons, were what brought safely through water. Noah was finally saved. 
Noah spent decades suffering for righteousness' sake. God saved him. God was faithful to Noah. He will be faithful to you. And how much greater will his faithfulness be in Jesus Christ? Now we get to another uh, challenging section. So we have the spirits in prison. That, of course, presents a challenge for us. And then we have this next phrase, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. This is a fun one. Because every time I baptize someone, I say, it's important for me to make it clear that baptism doesn't save. Here, 1 Peter says, baptism saves. So what do we do with that? First of all, remember, all of this is in the context of hope. So we're not getting tied into a theological knot just for the sake of a knot, but this is something that Peter's giving to these people to encourage them as they suffer for righteousness' sake. Thankfully, he clarifies, when I say baptism doesn't save, what I mean is this act of baptism, me placing water on this person, doesn't save. It's Jesus and faith in him that saves. And thankfully, Peter actually goes on to clarify and say this. So baptism saves, but let's clarify it. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. We're in verse 21. So in other words, the act of baptism doesn't save. It's not the water that saves, which is what I'm trying to say when I say baptism doesn't save. It's not this act that saves. What does save? Well, one of the ways that I phrased it before when we talk about baptism is baptism offers God's grace to us. Everyone who receives baptism, adults, children, has to receive that grace by faith. And that's what Peter's talking about here. It's this appeal for a good conscience, not an appeal to God for a good conscience through our works or by, because we've done good things, but an appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter uses different phrasing, but we're in agreement. The act of baptism doesn't save. However, in as much as it represents us receiving God's grace by faith, it's that. It's through Jesus Christ that we're saved. In fact, what's helpful here is the through words are consistent. So at the end of verse 20, they're brought safely through water. Verse 21, they're saved through what? Not through water, not through baptism, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God saved Noah through water. He will save you too. He saved Noah as Noah acted in faith to build the ark even when it didn't make sense, even when it was foolish, even when he looked like an idiot, even when he felt like an idiot. God finally vindicated him by bringing judgment, cleansing the earth of evil, and rescuing him. And God is going to do that again. If you want some... Uh, Exciting New Testament reading, you can turn to Peter's next letter, 2 Peter, chapter 2. Peter does not mince words there. And he talks even more about this and tells us that the second judgment won't come through water, it will come through fire. God is bringing judgment to this world. He is going to cleanse it in the same way that he cleansed the world and the flood. And so we hold on and stand firm. I mentioned this a couple times before. Uh, Peter ends his letter with the instructions to stand firm. 
And so this is building up to it. They can stand firm. They can have hope in suffering because they know that Jesus is their pattern. They're going to end in victory like he ended in victory. They're going to be saved like Noah was saved. And how are they going to be saved? Remember, Noah, it was through water. Here, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice we skipped something in verse 18 that we're going to go back to now. We talked about Jesus' suffering. We talked about his death and his resurrection. But what we didn't talk about was verse 18's discussion of why he died. He suffered. Why? Once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It is not an appeal to, uh, for a good conscience through our good works. It's an appeal through the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he suffered, not for himself, but for us. And he gave the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus' death was on our behalf. It's his death that saves us. It's our trust and confidence in his death for us. That's what that's gives us a clean conscience so that he might bring us to God. Noah was brought out of water, brought into safety, we will be brought out of suffering and to God. And so there's both something that's incredibly encouraging and incredibly sobering. If you're a Christian, it's incredibly encouraging. God is saving you not because of what you've done, but because of Jesus' death, the righteous for the unrighteous. If you're not a Christian, it's incredibly sobering because the story of the flood is one in which everyone thought Noah was an idiot until the waters came. In the same way, just because it seems in this world at times as if God is absent, it is not true. It is just his patience as he waits for the world to repent and his judgment is coming again. And so the time that God calls us to repent is now. The only way to be saved from God's judgment is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is as we have faith in him. And so his invitation and my invitation to anyone and everyone who does not have faith in Jesus Christ is to embrace that salvation before it's too late. Because we do not know the day or the hour. What we do know is that God's judgment is coming and he offers us salvation through the resurrection of his son to anyone who will repent and have faith in him. And for those who have repented, we can hold on knowing that he suffered too. And so how do we maintain hope and patience when we suffer for doing what is right? We maintain hope and patience because we know that the pattern of Jesus' life will be our pattern as well. Our suffering will end in victory like Jesus did. We know that we have not just Jesus' victory, but also his sympathy. We have a high priest who is tempted just like us. We know that his victory was complete, so complete that it's not just over the things that we can see, but over the things that we can't see. And finally, we have hope because God is not just giving us words, but he's given us an example. He was faithful to his son. He was faithful to Noah. And he will be faithful to us as well. As we continue suffering for the name of Jesus Christ, because we love him and we believe in him and we trust him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that speaks in a way that's timely. 
We ask that you'd use it to encourage us and comfort us. That we know as we suffer for your name that it's not something strange. Jesus knew it well, and we will know it too. We ask that you would encourage us in it with the hope that we have in Jesus. And we ask all of these things, uh, not because we deserve them or have earned them, but because Jesus Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so we ask these things in his name. Amen.